This is the sermon from Redwood Reformation Church on the 11th of June. Unfortunately, that Lord's Day, one of our children pressed a button on our recording gear, so we didn't manage to capture it. So I'm reading this sermon at home today. It is drawn from two passages. The first is Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless Yahweh builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. The second is Philippians 1, 1 through 6. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in every prayer for all of you, because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. You guessed it. This will not be our final sermon on Psalm 127. After what I said last week, it might seem as though I'm extending the series out on purpose. But God has laid it on my heart to preach something different from what I had planned the week before. After we met on Tuesday, I had been dwelling throughout the week on a question that someone raised. I kind of raised the same question in my first sermon, but I never got around to addressing it. This question is, how do we know we are not trying to build this church in vain? How do we know that Redwood is not destined to be a failed church plant? So I'm going to apply the scriptures to that question today as best I can. In my preparation, it led me to write a sermon that is generally about sanctification, what the building work of God looks like over time. When we consider how God builds, we can say with confidence that what we are doing here on each Lord's Day is not in vain. Now, in the previous sermons on the psalm, I pointed out that Solomon gives us a binary way of thinking about building. There is God's way of building and man's way. We then considered some of the materials that go into a house that God builds, namely the sin-bearing beams of love that go into a home. In acknowledging what materials he uses, we haven't spent much time on what it looks like when those better materials are being put into a house that is already standing. We could call this the sanctification or redemption of a building. I think it would be helpful to consider further how God installs those beams of love over time, and in doing this, I think we will answer the question that was raised about this church. If God is using the ministry of this church to help you build your house in love, there is nothing vain about any step toward that end. If, from week to week, you are being encouraged to greater love and good works, that is what the church is all about. It is what God intended the church to be doing. Now, it needs to be said that we could apply Psalm 127 incorrectly if we judge a building by its present state. The current state of a building is not necessarily an indicator of whether any future building will be in vain. Because God builds over time, we should judge a building project by its trajectory rather than the current state of its construction. We might despise the small beginnings of something that God is working on if we don't. Every building, even those that God builds, has to start somewhere. In Zechariah 14, it speaks of a small thing that God was building. Quote, For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. It is wrong to despise the day of small things whenever God is building, 
because he finishes whatever he starts. The final product is inevitable. There will be rejoicing. The question we should be asking when judging a building project is what materials are going into this building and how are the laborers laboring? Because if they are building with the materials God uses and are working in accordance with his will, whatever you see those laborers building is God's building, no matter how small or unfinished the construction is at the time. The building methods will tell us if a building is going to be vain or not. So let's consider what God's building methods look like in a church and in individuals over time. The theological term for this aspect of building is called sanctification. We've already used that term. From the passage we read in Philippians today, we know that there is a beginning, a middle, and an end to sanctification. God begins a good work in us. Now we are somewhere in the middle of that good work. And one day in his time, he will bring that good work to completion. God will always finish building what he started. When Calvin considered this verse in Philippians, he supported Paul's teaching with two Old Testament passages. The first was Isaiah 64.8. But now, O Yahweh, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are the potter, and all of us are the work of your hand. This is speaking about Israel corporately. The body of Israel is the work of God's hands. The second was Psalm 138.8. Yahweh will accomplish what concerns me. O Yahweh, your loving kindness endures forever. Do not fail the work of your hands. This is speaking about David individually. He is the work of God's hands. Because we are the work of his hands, both the church and individually, we can have confidence that he will not leave us as an unfinished building project. His name is on what he builds, so what he begins, he will complete. Calvin gives us this pastoral exhortation in light of the fact that God completes all of his works. Quote, Therefore, believers ought to exercise themselves in constant meditation upon the favors which God confers, that they may encourage and confirm hope as to the time to come, and always ponder in their mind this syllogism, God does not forsake the work which his own hands have begun. End quote. This is a beautiful truth, one that needs to sink into our very core. Like Calvin said, it is something we need to constantly meditate on, especially when we are struggling, when we feel as though God's work on us has halted. Bringing a building to completion is a timely process. With the sanctification of a human, it takes a lifetime. As much as we would want it, holiness doesn't just drop from the sky and transform us in an instant. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Since we have done a bunch of vain building in our lives, God's building work of sanctification could be described as a work of renovation rather than a new build. I think this is a helpful way to think about it. He slowly and methodically renovates our house so that they steadily improve over time. New habits forming, greater personal discipline, more gratitude, things like that. God clearly loves the slow and methodical kind of building. 
it is seen in more things than in individual sanctification. For example, he would not let Israel take over the land of Canaan too quickly, lest the wild beasts overwhelm them. Deuteronomy 7.22 Yahweh your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. The takeover of the land of Canaan is not just a good picture of our sanctification. It is that. But it is also the way that God works. Another example is how God progressively revealed himself to Israel, not all at once, teaching them many difficult lessons over thousands of years. This is how God strengthens and improves things, through slow and steady growth. This is often a frustrating thing for us though, isn't it? Every week it can feel like we are struggling with the same things. We all wish that the process of sanctification wasn't so slow. It can seem at times that we are having to claw our way forward by inches. I've just introduced my boys to the original Super Mario Brothers Nintendo game. There is a special star in that game that you get from bumping your head on a box, and that star allows you to run through your enemies without dying. They just blip off the screen when you touch them. Don't we all wish that upon conversion, we all got one of those invincibility stars so that we didn't have to face the normal difficulties of running the course? But the invincibility star of Super Mario is about as true to life as the flying turtle birds that are also in that game. The truth is, when you become a Christian, in many ways, the course gets harder. Before we were converted, we did nothing about our lack of holiness. The opening screen of the game was game over, you lose. None of the buttons worked on the controller. Mario was dead at the starting line. But now that we have been regenerated to new life, we are actually in the fight. In one sense, this is where difficulty begins. You start with level one and you take on an enemy for the first time. New life is about constantly mortifying your remaining fleshliness a lifetime of dying to yourself. Sanctification through many levels that get progressively harder. We are told in the book of Hebrews that if we want to win the race, it requires strict and difficult training. Jesus tells us that we are not only to go through a narrow gate, but we continue on to a hard and narrow path. It never widens out to an easy path. But how much does our remaining flesh wish that it would. At our weakest, we are living sacrifices that want to crawl off the altar. Since this is the case, a truth that we need, a help in times of despair, is to know that the slowness of God's renovating work is in itself a kindness toward us. This is one of two big takeaways that I want us to get from the sermon. Slow sanctification is kind. With our wise and loving God, could his slowness and sanctification be anything other than kind? It is in full accord with his wise and loving purposes. If he were to strip out all of the dry rot, everything that was weak and needing replacing in our homes, which is a lot, if he did that all at once, wouldn't our houses collapse on themselves? As it is with natural buildings, you've got to renovate weak structures one step at a time. Many of the load-bearing supports of our home need replacing. 
These renovations may require patience and unique preparations, unique supplementary supports to replace what was there. Not only will it require patience from those undergoing these renovations, people within the church will need to understand that other church members are at varying stages of renovation. Each of these renovations will require a varied approach. We see these requirements for a varied approach toward others' needs and Paul's instructions to the Thessalonians. Quote, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 There is no cookie-cutter approach to the renovations of sanctification. Since it is God's idea to sanctify us slowly and with care and wisdom, shouldn't we conclude that it is necessary for us to be sanctified in this way? It would be wrong for us to despise the speed of God's sanctification. We must patiently, week after week, offer our lives up to God to be changed as He deems fit. This idea that God builds by renovating the individual is also true on the corporate level for us as a church. In a sense, Reedwood has been built from scratch. There was no church and now there is one. But in another sense, this building was a composite of all our strengths and weaknesses from the get-go. We all bought our baggage and poor building practices into this body, and now we own them all together. And the work of sanctification ought to be done together. It was God's intention when he established the church that we be sanctified through it. Sanctification was never meant to be the work of the isolated individual. This church is being held together with flawed members, but God wouldn't have it any other way. He builds his church with fallen men and women and equips them for this work. The church is a fitting tool in the hand of God for the renovation of his people. When Jesus prayed for the church body, he asked the Father, Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. So we come every Lord's Day as flawed members with our flawed houses to be reformed, to have a few rotten floorboards taken out one week, to fix a leaking pipe the next, to have a whole roof replaced a month later. And this is done with the sanctifying power of the truth the word of God applied to our lives. If you can say that this has happened in your house since you have been at Redwood, it is a good indicator that this church has, be, has not been building in vain. This is the building work that God made the church to be doing. And as the ministry of the church strengthens you and your house, you are strengthening the church at the same time. The individual's growth and the church's growth are inseparable. They are linked by the same builder. To sum up this point, if sanctification is happening, a church is not building in vain. Now we're going to narrow our focus even further. Where should renovations begin? Where should sanctification start? It starts with the heart. Considering this point is actually going to do some groundwork for the next sermon that we're going to do on arrows in a father's quiver. One thing that we'll need to cover next week is that father's arrows are made, not merely born. Putting it another way, 
a child born to Christian parents is not an effective arrow just because his parents were Christian. An effective arrow-like child is a threat to an enemy. And stating the obvious, not all children from Christian homes are a force to be reckoned with. Today, you wouldn't usually describe them as a threat to power. Godly discipleship will make them arrows. Christian children must be shaped and formed over time through Christian discipleship. Like their parents, they must be sanctified in the truth. And in this process of sanctification, the heart must be the parent's priority. I'll prove this in a minute. Children that do not have hearts that love to obey will be impotent arrows, spaghetti noodles in a father's quiver. Now, why are we going here? I believe that in the same way that parents can produce impotent arrows, the church will be impotent in the culture if its pastors do not make it their priority to address the heart of their congregation first and foremost. I'll explain this further later. Notice how Solomon shaped and formed his arrows in the book of Proverbs. He made considering the heart the priority. He said to his son, Above all else, above all else, guard your heart. For everything, everything you do flows from it. Proverbs 4.23 We have considered this verse before in our midweek post-millennial parenting studies. There is a lot to learn from it regarding parenting, but it also has a lot of explanatory power. It helps us to know ourselves. Why do you, as an adult, do what you do? Why is it that anger rises up in you all the time? Why do you complain so much? These are manifestations or outworkings of what is in your heart. Everything you do flows from the condition of your heart. And the condition of your heart is as good or as bad as it is because of how you have been guarding it. If you are constantly manifesting anger, it is likely you have not guarded your heart from that inclination in the past. You've given into it and you have been formed by it. This is how we are to understand ourselves. Everything you do flows from your heart. So guard it. Don't allow it to be polluted by the ways of the world and the devil. Fill your heart with the things that are from above. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Philippians 4, 8 through 9. This is the second big takeaway from the sermon. All our works, whether they are good or bad, don't come out of nowhere. They come from our heart condition. It is not enough for a father or a pastor to tell you what you need to do when your heart is in the wrong place. That is a sure way to make whitewashed tombs hiding the ugliness of the bones inside. The church needs to know why God's standards are good. Their affections need to be trained toward them so that they obey from the heart. Many of us did not have fathers teach us this lesson. Our hearts were left to the world to be molded and shaped by them. 
we were taught to follow our hearts rather than guard them. Is there any wonder that so many church kids are in love with the world and do not follow the God of their parents? Applying this to the church again, since all of our actions flow from the heart and our hearts have largely been left unguarded from the beginning, at the root of God's sanctifying work must be the testing and correcting of our hearts. The Bible tells us just how difficult this is. The truth is, without having the illumination of God's word, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17.9 Again, we see that the heart is the main issue in this passage. Above all things, the heart is deceitful. Left to ourselves, no one can even know their own heart. You just can't. I can't. We need to be aware of our lack of awareness. We need to allow God to change us in the very core of our being. Do we really believe this? Do we really believe ourselves to be so blind, so deceived? The truth is, we are so deceived, it is hard for us to believe we are so deceived. We can't know ourselves. Even for the sanctified Christian, there are places where we are really that deceived. This being the case, we are totally dependent on God to show us where our houses need a do-over. We should expect it to be a surprising process. It will be surprising where God wants to do renovations. God sees what is going on underneath the floorboards. If this church is building correctly... There will be times when you will be saying to yourself, Wow, I thought I was completely in the right, but I was wrong. Wow, no wonder that wasn't working. I was building in vain. If God is to complete what he started, all sin will eventually come into his crosshairs. He loves us enough to expose all our wicked thoughts and intentions, even the things we don't understand about ourselves. This is how he describes the ministry of the living and active word. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joint and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have to give an account. Hebrews 4.12-13 Since God builds our houses by renovating what is corrupt inside it, a good church will give a large chunk of its ministry to the sanctification of its members. It will preach about sin, and it will give the hope and certainty of the believer's future sanctification. Get this. It is God's desire that we participate in the beauty of His holiness. Some people think, holiness, boring. We must think, holiness, beautiful, glorious, a wonderful thing. Sinlessness is beautiful. God will ensure that we participate in that good because he loves us. This is wonderful news for the struggling Christian. If you are struggling... Place your faith in God's promise to sanctify you, that it will not always be the way it is right now. 
God will finish the good work that he began in you. Coming back to my original point, if we are to be a church that does not build in vain, that is growing in sanctification, we need to be a church that values holiness and the hard but necessary process of attaining it. A person who loves the holiness of God will be obedient from the heart. And a person who is obedient from the heart is a force to be reckoned with. May God make us here at Redwood these kinds of disciples. I want to finish by reading a large section of Hebrews 12. I think it will tie together a lot of the things that I've been saying today. It speaks of the sanctifying discipline of the Lord. How it is painful and difficult when you are going through it, even a kind of flogging. But it also speaks of how it produces His holiness in us. Having a rightly ordered perspective, the flogging is only a light and momentary hardship. The holiness of God, which will be ours, is a thing of incomparable beauty. Let's read it now to finish. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, laying aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary, fainting in heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he flogs every son whom he receives. It is for your discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which we all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our benefit, so that we may share his holiness. And all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. But to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Seeing to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble, and by it many be defiled. So that was a sermon from June 11th. Now I'm going to play for you a recording that I made for the congregation of Redwood so that we would learn how to sing Psalm 127 in parts. Enjoy.
Unless the Lord does build the house, the builders work in vain. Unless the Lord the city guards, the watchmen guard in vain. It's vain for you to early rise and late at work to loved ones for children are your heritage the Lord's great gift in truth like arrows in the warrior's hand are children of It is the man who has a quiver full of them. They'll not be shamed when in the gate with force.